Good morning, Grace. You can't not smile singing that song. That is not a dirge. Welcome to Grace Nashville this morning, by the way. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. That's right. I like, I like Nashville. Um, boy, Paul could have written uh, that line and that chorus there. Oh, what peace that I've found wherever I may be. Um, he's essentially going to say that we're going to see here in our text this morning. Um, he's found the secret of contentment uh, in whatever his circumstances, but I want us to learn that this morning. Uh, and so why don't we turn to uh, Philippians chapter 4, and I want to start, read our, our final passage here. Very sad we've been in Philippians now for, um, this is I think our 12th Sunday here and, and last, and then our reflection service is next Sunday. So uh, be thinking and praying this week and come prepared next week, 9.30 service. Um, how might the Lord want to use you to share what you've been learning, how God's been teaching you and helping you grow in Him through this precious letter. I feel like the Philippian church has become a precious church. We're going to meet believers from the church of Philippi one day. Isn't that cool? Um, So let's read this last passage. I want to pray uh, and and we'll go from there. Let's uh, read. Philippians 4.10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And yet it was kind of you to share my trouble And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, I want to pray one of the things that we read in that catechism earlier that you would answer. This is a prayer this morning. Christ, this morning, by your Holy Spirit, would you assure us of our eternal life, assure us of what we have through Christ? And I pray you would, you would make us wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live with you and to live for you until the day of Christ. Lord, use our time in the Word this morning in this last little section of Philippians here to teach us uh, uh, the things you want us to learn. In Jesus' name, amen. I've been on a kick watching some documentaries recently about climbing. I I am not a climber. I don't have any desire for rock climbing. It terrifies me, Um, but I'm fascinated watching. And recently, a number of amazing uh, documentaries have come out about climbers. And in the last 
month or so, I've watched two in particular I want to start with here. There's a reason. Hang with me. The first one is called, was called The Dawn Wall. If you have, if you're, these are vertigo-inducing pictures, so you look away if, if you have trouble with heights. I, I had to watch each of these documentaries sort of like this. But, oh, so this is called The Dawn Wall, and The Dawn Wall is arguably the hardest route up the face of El Capitan in Yosemite. They describe it as just this smooth face of granite with these tiny, tiny little holes. Anyway, so Don Wall is about these two guys, Tommy Caldwell and Kevin Jorgensen, who finally, they were the first two uh, to climb the Don Wall, free climb it. It took them 19 days. Um, yeah, they, they lived in that little portal ledge you see way down there at the bottom of the screen, this little cot suspended for 19 days as they kept doing every, every pitch to the top um, and years of training before that. So, but they free climbed it. Um, it was an amazing documentary. Uh, it's, I recommend it. Um, Free Solo, maybe you've heard some, this just got an, uh, an Oscar this year, this documentary. Alex Honnold is probably the world's best climber. He's just, he's just a prodigy. He's amazing. But he, this last year, Free Solo climbed another route on El Capitan, and he did it in three hours and 56 minutes. So why am I talking about this? This, as I've been watching these things, there are two really big differences between free climbing and free solo climbing, all right? On the left there, free climbing, as terrifying as that is for me to look at, it's done with ropes and partners. That makes all the difference to me, right? So you can't maybe see it in the picture, but that guy, Tommy Caldwell, in the red shirt on on the left, there's a rope attached to a harness, clipped into an anchor point, going down to his partner down on that portal ledge who's paying attention and he's on belay and he has his weight so that if he slips and falls, he's got him as they're climbing. But man, free solo climbing is just one crazy dude with a chalk bag just going for it. And, and, and admittedly, he, knowing one, one slip, that's it. He's not wearing a parachute. Um, so I've been thinking about free climb, free, uh, not free solo, but free climbing um, as I watched it as a powerful metaphor and illustration of some of the aspects of the Christian life we've been seeing in Philippians. Um, three in particular, don't press any metaphor and illustration too far, but in these three ways, Philippians has been reminding me sort of the Christian life is sort of like free climbing. Number one, it's an upward call. That's Paul's language. He uses a metaphor. He probably wasn't thinking about climbing, but he says in chapter three, one thing I do, I forgetting what lies behind, or we could think below, and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So he envisions the Christian life is this upward trajectory. It begins at conversion when we trust Christ for the first time and we turn from our sin and God comes into our life and indwells us by his spirit. But then the Christian life is one, it's an upward trajectory. It's one that Paul says should be marked by progress and joy in the faith. One that is increasingly filled with the fruit of righteousness. And, and to keep with this metaphor, the peak that the upward call is climbing toward is the day of Christ. Yeah, either the day that the Lord takes you home and you see Christ or face with Christ or the day Christ returns. But either way, Paul says that the, what, we're, what we're moving toward is to be presented pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So in one sense, it's, it's this upward climb, this upward call. 
But the second way it's like free climbing, in, in my opinion, and not free solo climbing, is it's done together. We do this together. It's not a free solo. The Christian life is not intended to be solo, but in community, within the context of a local church where we together um, strive uh, side by side for the faith of the gospel, Paul would say, where we stand firm together in one spirit, he said. It's one where we don't just look out for our own interests solo, but for the interests of others. We count one another as more significant than ourselves, and we love one another, and love abounds among us. And so we're all in this upward climb together. And the third way uh, it's, it's done, kind of like free climbing, is with ropes, Christian life is not even just, okay, we all together, church, we're going to muscle forward to the upward call and we're going to do this in our own strength. Yes, we do it or in, uh, interdependently, but we're all ultimately dependent on God and his Holy Spirit at work in us. If he wasn't, we'd be lost. We'd have no hope. But it's sort of like ropes and anchor points. God, who he is, his word of life, in chapter 2, verse 16, it says, which we hold fast to, we hold fast to the word of life. God's promises and his word function like ropes and anchor points for us so that, yes, we are climbing. Sanctification is, is a progression where we are, we are walking with the Lord and looking to obey him and walk in his ways, but we're, we're not free solo in this thing. There's ropes and harness and anchor. God has got us. He's supporting us and he's in us at work. And so these anchor points provide confidence and security as we climb. We can be assured as we climb that even when we fail and fall and slip and hit certain points where we just keep feeling like it's just, we're back here again. God's got us. Just think about a couple of the anchor points in Philippians. So we're called to climb. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But here's the anchor point. For God works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I can leave my, rest my faith on that. God is in me. He is working both in my will and my works to bring about the very thing that he's calling me to. Or we climb this upward call with the rope of faith clipped into promises like this. To live is Christ and to die is gain. And we cling to that hold, that anchor hold that because of the gospel, because my sin has completely been paid for and I ha have full assurance that God looks on me with the same smile he looks upon his son Jesus. And when I see God face to face one day, I can, I can look forward to that day eagerly because of that gospel hope that sets me free from even fear of death where death, our greatest enemy, can only speed us to our gain, when I cling to that anchor hold, um, I can be strong and strengthened in this upward call. We can. Well, in this last section here in Philippians that I just read, I think Paul has two last lessons for us. He wants us to learn to be content, learn the secret, he calls it, of contentment. And he wants to encourage us as he was encouraging the Philippians, to, to spur us on to be and continue to be cheerful givers. And he gives us an anchor point, I think, even in this text. Look at verse 19. I think it's another anchor hold here for us that both contentment and generosity hang on. He says this, my God will supply every need of yours 
according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. That's nothing that you do or I do. That's something that God promises. He promises to supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That's a fighter verse. That is one of those sentences in the Bible that we should memorize and repeat daily. My God will supply every need. He knows our needs, even things that I don't think I need. And he knows things that I think I need that I don't need. But he will supply every need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. If I hang my life and my faith on that anchor point, I can be content in the way Paul's talking about here. And so can you. And if I trust in that saying that my God will supply every need, it can set us free from stinginess and selfishness and tight-fistedness with our things and release our grip to know I can, I can trust, I can freely give because God's got me. He will supply my needs. We're going to see this both in this passage here this morning. So let's dive in. Here's how verses 10 through 20 are structured. I think in verse 10, as he's closing the letter, he finally comes back around to one of his main purposes of sending the letter in the first place, to thank the church for this gift that Epaphroditus nearly died to deliver. They had sent him, they had raised money and and material uh, gift and they'd sent it by way of Epaphroditus. And at the beginning of the letter, he said, I thank God uh, as I remember your partnership in the gospel with me from the first day until now. So now in verse 10, he's talking about the now, the gift he has now received um, presently. And he says, look at verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. Unless they misunderstand that as sort of a passive-aggressive, hey, it's been a long time since I got anything from you. He says, you were indeed concerned for me. He doesn't doubt that he was always on their mind. He says, but you had no opportunity. So for whatever reason, Paul was aware that maybe because of their poverty and, and they didn't have the means or maybe someone to bring it. But he says, I, I understand that you've still been concerned for me. But nevertheless, this gift has caused me to rejoice greatly. But then he does a kind of a typical Paul thing. Before he just tells you why he's rejoicing greatly in the gift, he immediately takes a a sidebar, a left turn, and he wants to first make sure that they know what isn't a reason that he's rejoicing greatly over this gift. What is this not, what is this joy not about? What is this joy not contingent on? And he says this in verse 11. He says, it's not that I'm speaking of being in need. So that's not it. And then he takes three verses to to pause and talk about contentment and why this gift hasn't made him happy because it's changed his circumstances, which has now made him content. He was content already. And then in verse 14, he actually gets back on track and he actually, in verse 14 through 20, explains, here's why I really rejoice over your gift. So we're going to think a bit about contentment and then we're going to think about giving, the generosity that that delights him and what about their generosity in particular causes him to smile. So let's start with verse 11 through 13. The secret of contentment, which Paul said he had learned, which means we can learn it. First question I want to ask about contentment. What does he mean? what What does he mean by content? Well, look at the first part of verse 11. That gets at it. It's it's something in his inner spirit, his frame of mind, that allows him to say, I'm not speaking of being in need. It's a state of not being in need, not feeling a sense of neediness and dissatisfaction. 
Um, it's a frame of spirit. Notice it's not his state of circumstances. So he, when he says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, that doesn't mean he doesn't actually have some real legitimate physical needs. And I, we know this because look at what he says next. He says, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content so I can not be in need in the following circumstances. Verse 12, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, on any end of the spectrum, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and what? And need. So that sounds sort of like an oxymoron. This contentment he's talking about is a state of not being in need, even at times when he actually is in need, right? So when his circumstances involve significant needs, even like hunger, nevertheless, his frame of spirit the place his soul rests can be in a state of not being in need. His joy and his peace is anchored to something or tethered to something that is fixed and not his circumstances. I want to commend a great little book to you. This was written hundreds of years ago by a guy named Jeremiah Burroughs. Um, it's called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. It's a wonderful little book. The whole book is just an extended reflection. Just, it's, it's like an example of taking a verse like verse 11. Um, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content and to chew on that and meditate on that and reflect on it. But I just wanted to read you his definition for Christian contentment that, that, that he suggests based on this text and, 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 the, and the Bible. I'll show it to you. I'll put it on the screen. I don't have to read it from my book. There it is. He says, it is that sweet Inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Disposal doesn't mean garbage disposal. It means like his ordering of events in your life, what the Father has, has ordered for your life. It's a quiet, inward, gracious frame. Now, obviously, if you read the whole book, he's going to make some qualifications and help us understand that doesn't mean we don't ever feel desire. We just hush our desires. We stuff our desires. We rise above our desires. Um, or that we don't ever voice our concerns or our complaints or our, 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 our needs before the Lord. But nevertheless, he's saying this contentment is a spirit in us, or an inner frame of spirit, which is at rest, and it freely submits and delights in God. God's got this, and he's working his plans out in our life. And that's what Paul's talking about here. He's come to learn this. It's my soul's ability to be satisfied no matter what I have or don't have, or no matter who I am or who I'm not, or where I am or where I'm not, or who you're with or who you're not with. Nevertheless, you can have this, Paul is saying. Another thing he's not saying, I just want to be clear. It doesn't mean then to have this kind of contentment means we never seek to fulfill any lack or any needs, any legitimate needs, or have any desires for good things. So, for example, think, we wouldn't assume that when Paul says, I know how to be content in hunger, that that meant when he was in times of hunger, he didn't try to find food or get food, right? No, I'm not going to eat. This is a time of hunger. No, of course not. What he's saying is, even when God has had me in times where the belt was tight, my joy and my confidence in the Lord was unshaken. But he's still going to try to get food, right? Same thing applies to all these things. Contentment when you're unemployed doesn't mean don't 
Keep up the job search earnestly and continue to pray and ask the Lord to provide a job, right? Contentment and singleness doesn't rule out at the same time desiring marriage as a good gift that the Lord gives and seeking a husband and wife actively. But you can do it with a frame of spirit like Burroughs and and Paul is talking about. So let's not misunderstand, it's not resignation, but it's an inward frame of spirit that we can have even in the midst of desires and things we might lack and, and, and want. Second thing I want to point out about this, I kind of already said it, but second point is Paul learned this. I love that. He says it twice. In verse 11, he says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And then he says it again at the end of verse 12. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And sandwiched in between there, he says twice, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. So he's learned it in a way that now there's a knowledge he's gained through learning. So he doesn't just say, I've heard the secret. Let me share it with you. I've discovered the secret. That would be great to share it with you. He's saying, I've been through a process in my life. God has brought me in times of hunger, into times of need and want, and he's brought me into times of abundance. And this secret in verse 13 that he's about to share with us, he says, I have put that secret to the test, essentially, on either end of the spectrum. I have clung to that anchor point here that that we're getting to in verse 13, when I was desperately in need and when I had more than I ever needed and God has proven himself true in either case Christ has been faithful and dependable I've learned contentment it's come through time and a process of trusting and God proving himself faithful and and his know-how increased so that's encouraging because that means Paul's not just a super Christian and just somehow able to be content in whatever circumstance and you think I could never say that this is something we can learn Third thing, uh, we need to learn to be content, Paul says, in both need and in abundance. He makes a big deal about not, you, you might expect him to just say, I've learned how to be content in need and in hunger and when I have nothing and leave it at that. But he really, he keeps saying it in both, in, ab- in abundance and in plenty, I've also learned to be content. It might seem obvious to you that we struggle with contentment when we lack, Right? We've all experienced that. Maybe this morning, that's right where you're at. There's, there is, you're just aware of the lack and, and you're not happy about it. Um, I was thinking about the, the song from The Wizard of Oz. All of a sudden popped into my mind as I was thinking about contentment uh, in need, contentment in need. If I only had a heart, if I only had a brain, if I only had the nerve, that phrase, if I only had, captures discontentment when we lack, Right? It's this, this thought in our mind, there's, whatever it is, you fill in the blank, you're if I only had. That I could be happy if I only had that. I could be at peace if I only had that. Life would be good and I could, I could smile if I only had that. And Paul says we can learn to be content even if we don't. We can actually not be in need even while we feel that need. But I want to think about why do we need and, and why does contentment not just automatically come with abundance? Well, um, I think actually it might be harder to be content the way Paul's talking about here when, when we are in plenty and we do have more than we need. I think in a couple of ways we can fail to be content in abundance. First way is this, we can just still not be satisfied, right? 
Have you experienced that? You look around, your life is good. You got more than you need. It's comfortable. God has blessed you richly and you're still unhappy. And you're still dissatisfied and you still want more. We can do that, can't we? Coveting is not just a poor person's sin. (laughs) The wealthiest people are frequently the least happy and content people. We know this, right? We've heard testimonies of this. Just last year, uh, Jim Carrey, the actor, I read this interview that he did. Jim Carrey, the wheels are sort of falling off the wagon sort of in terms of his, uh, you know, kind of worldview. He came to a point in the last couple of years of, if you don't know, this kind of existential crisis and has said some kind of wacky stuff in interviews about kind of what he believes about reality. But anyway, in this interview, the interviewer says, what's brought you to this place? Why are you feeling all this? And here's what he said. He's very honest. He said, I guess just getting to the place where you have everything everybody has ever desired and realizing you're still unhappy. To be the one other people envy and covet. He says, and and that you can still be unhappy is a shock when you've accomplished everything you've ever dreamt of and more and you realize, my gosh, it's not about this. He says, and I wish for everyone to be able to accomplish those things so that they can see that. In other words, he's kind of come to his own Ecclesiastes moment of I've had everything that anyone would ever dream of wanting and, and I'm not satisfied. It all feels like vanity, just like, like Ecclesiastes says. And, and Lord willing, the Lord will help him in this finally come to discover where that contentment truly is found. But he's saying what we should know, right, is abundance does not equal contentment. We can be deeply discontent and yet have everything. I was thinking of the kid's book, Yertle the Turtle. You ever read that? I love that book. Yertle is the turtle king, right? And it doesn't matter how many turtles he stacks up, the higher he gets only increases the vantage point for him to see more stuff that he doesn't have. And the higher he rises, the more unhappy he becomes until finally it all comes crashing down. Do you need to (laughs) be set free from this this morning? On paper, do you have far more than you'd ever need and yet you're, you're unhappy? You need to learn contentment in abundance. But I think that there's an even more dangerous way of not having contentment uh, in abundance and it's this. You can be content because of your abundance. You can actually just be happy as can be and content with the good stuff that God's given you. And the reason I think that that's more dangerous than the other way is at least the first way, not being content with all of your abundance, can lead you to an Ecclesiastes sort of moment and say, okay, then what is it all about? Where is contentment found? But the danger of being satisfied with stuff, one, when the stuff goes away, your contentment's going to evaporate, but let's just say it doesn't go away and you live to your dying day with lots of abundance and that's perfectly fine with you. It can actually keep you from Christ. You can lose eternity because you're content with abundance. That was the rich young man who came to Jesus, right? He had everything and he was a good guy. Sincerely, he wanted to know. He, he believed in God and he wanted to know, how I, do I inherit eternal life? And when Jesus boiled it down to, okay, You can follow me or you can keep all of your great wealth. And when he put it that way, it revealed what was greatest to him. And he said, you know, I'm I'm actually good with the wealth. Says he went away sad, but he went away rich and yet ultimately poor. So we need to learn contentment 
in abundance. We need to be called to not be content in our abundance. One of the helpful bits in this book that that points that, that Burroughs makes, he makes it three times in three different ways, and I want to share it. It might sound paradoxical at first, but Christian contentment um, in, in part is actually discontentment. Listen to what he says. He says, we need to learn not to be satisfied with all the world for our portion. So in other words, Christian contentment, he's saying, is not being satisfied with all, even if we had all the world for our portion. And yet, at the same time, to be content with the meanest or poorest condition in which we are. Does that make sense? It's a both. And he puts it another way. So in other words, a little in this world will content a Christian for his passage. In other words, I can get along with that. I'm I'm content as as the Lord leads me along. But on the other hand, all the world and 10,000 times more will not content a Christian for his portion. In other words, to, to, to fill the spot only Christ should fill in terms of my ultimate satisfaction. Says it one other way in case we haven't quite gotten. A contented man, though he is most contented with the least things in the world, yet he's most dissatisfied man that lives in the world. In other words, contentment with abundance in a way is having a holy discontentment when it comes to everything else that God has made in the world and anything else that I could content myself in. So we need to learn at both ends of the spectrum the secret. And here we are. You're like, okay, let's just get to the secret. Verse 13, here's the secret. You've read it on a poster in a gym at some point in your life, I'm sure, or on a bumper sticker. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. There it is, one of the most famously ripped out of context verses in the whole Bible, right? And so again, let's just remind ourselves, Eric said this a few weeks ago, but Paul's not saying you can, you know, bench 800 pounds and dunk a basketball and earn a a million dollars through Christ who strengthens you. No, he means what he just said in verse 11. I can be content in whatever situation I'm in. The all things he's talking about is whatever situation with next to nothing or nothing, or with more than I could ever dream of, I can be content. And here's the secret, he says. I can do it through him who strengthens me, Christ who strengthens me. This is what I think he means when he says that. I think Paul had come to a point where he he realized if Christ is the one the one thing I truly desire more deeply than anything else, the one person I I need more than anything else, the only one without whom I really would be lost, then if I have Christ and even death can't separate me from him, I'm good. I can be okay with nothing. If if Christ is the one non-negotiable thing, as long as I have Christ, I can be content. Listen to this from Sinclair Ferguson. Uh, can you uh, advance that for me? The Grace Kids number up there is uh, holding me back. Stripped of my power. <laughs> All right, hold on, let me go. All right, it's a tug of war. There it is. Sinclair Ferguson says, only when our Christ is big enough to satisfy us can we be content no matter our particular circumstances. And more than that, even be satisfied with the circumstances and not merely despite the circumstances. If our one thing is Christ and he can't be taken away from us, that's the secret to contentment. It's through knowing Christ, which makes sense, right? Because back in chapter three, what did he tell us is the one thing of surpassing value and worth in his estimation. 
Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, right? For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them all as rubbish. You can strip everything away. He says, in order that I may gain Christ. If I come out the other end still with Christ, good. So we're strengthened through our knowledge of Christ. And I think, I want us to think here a bit about our knowledge of Christ and the layers or aspects of that 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 strengthen us to be content. First of all, let's start here. Knowing Christ is for you will make you content, will strengthen you for contentment. Knowing that Christ is on your side. So this is all because of the gospel. If it weren't for what Christ did at the cross, God is not on your side. We are enemies of God by nature and from birth, but because Jesus died at the cross for our sin, atoning for our sin and rose from the grave and freely offers us grace and acceptance and uh, sonship with God forever, because of that, we can be confident and knowing Christ is for us. At every step in our life until we're face to face with Jesus, he's for us, he's on our side in everything, even when it looks like he's not. We sing in It Is Well With My Soul, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. It's this confidence, knowing that because of that, Christ is for me in everything. So as we sang, so we pray, God, open up my eyes to believe that that you have made these ways for me, that you're not against me. Christ, you're not against me in this lack. You're for me. And the knowledge of that strengthens us for contentment. But more than just knowing that Christ is for us, it's even better than that. Knowing that Christ is with us. Listen to this from Hebrews 13, five and six. Another great fighter verse, by the way, worth memorizing and repeating to yourself daily. But it comes with a command and then an anchor point. He says, Be content with what you have. There's the command. Here's the anchor that it it hangs on. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Why can you be content with whatever you have or don't have? Because I trust that he has said, his word, I will never leave you or forsake you. Christ has promised to be with you. And you say, okay, so how does that strengthen me? The next verse tells you. Because of that, Verse six, it says, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? That's just another form of contentment. Fearlessness in the face of things that are fearful because I know Christ is not only for me, he is with me and he'll never leave me or forsake me. That's strength. The strength of contentment. That's the second half of the prayer in that Nashville song we just sang. Open up my eyes that I might see that you not only have made these ways for me, but will walk with me. You don't just say that away, Christ, I'll catch you at the finish line, but he goes with us in our lack and in our abundance. But even on top of that, his being with us is even nearer than just moving around ahead of us, behind us, making sure all things are being worked according to his plan for our good. We know that Christ is in us. Our union with Christ means that we are in Christ and that he is in us. His spirit indwells us. Remember the beginning of the letter where his confidence came when he said, 
I am confident. It's my eager expectation that when I face trial before Caesar, I will honor Christ in my body whether I live or by I die. Do you remember where his confidence came from? He says, I know it because through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, Paul knew that as he stood before Caesar, Christ was with him and in him, was standing with him and even helping Paul be courageous. Not just standing aside going, come on, you can do it. But within us, the Holy Spirit is helping bring about the very contentment that we long for. The Spirit of Christ is. I love this. One last quote I'm going to throw at you here. I think it's the last one. Eric Raymond, who wrote a book recently called Chasing Contentment, he said, so this, when we understand that Christ is for us and, uh, and, and with us and in us, uh, he says, when, then, and we're content, we can spy mercy in every condition and have our hearts laminated with thanksgiving. I love that. I also realized that that was connected to the last point about with us and for us. But nevertheless, I'm glad we got up there. Right, when I know God's with me and for me, um, that I can see his mercy even in conditions of lack and, and need. And I can be thankful. That wasn't the last quote. Here's the quote I actually want to get to <laughs> related to being Christ in us. This pastor says this, so contentment at the end of the day, it's not ignoring our circumstances. It's not rising above them. It's not resigning ourselves to our circumstances, but living in them in Christ and with Christ in us, living in our circumstances, in union with Christ. That's what the secret. That's where contentment that's how we're strengthened, by living in our circumstances, whatever they are, in Christ. I love that. So before we're done this morning, that's what we need to pray. Lord, teach us this. Help us to learn this. Apply this truth. Lean on this anchor point, our faith on that my God will supply every need of mine according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus and help me live in that, in, in these circumstances in Christ. But, clock's slipping by and I want us to get back to verse 14 and what he originally was saying and why at the end of the day if, if he wasn't happy over the gift because it made him content why is he happy and he says uh, for a couple of reasons look at verse 17 it wasn't the amount he says it's not that I seek the gift it wasn't the actual gift that caused him to smile it was what motivated the gift verse 10 it was what it, it showed that they still had concern for him. He was still on their minds and that encouraged him. And verse 14, the gift was a sign of their kindness toward him that they had a desire to share his trouble with him, to not leave him alone, but to be, stand with him in that through prayer and support. And these then make him rejoice for two reasons. Number one, he sees the gift and he says that is evidence that God is continuing to bear fruit among you. That's being, they're filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through, the, through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of the Father. He sees it and he sees fruit. Look at verse 17b. I don't seek the gift. What I seek is the fruit that increases to your credit. That's what I want to see and that's what I'm seeing here and that's why I'm smiling and why I'm, I'm rejoicing greatly. And he can trace it. Look at verse 15. All the way back to when they first came to Christ. He says from the beginning of the gospel when they first heard the gospel and turned to Christ and had this newfound joy in Christ that joy led them to want to partner with Paul. He says they were the only church, apparently, who said to Paul, we want to enter into a partnership with you of giving and receiving. And even when you leave from here, we want to be part of it. His great commission 
being gripped by the Great Commission gripped them and they said, we want you to keep taking the gospel where it's not been named. And they entered into this partnership. And all along the way, even to this day, this, this generosity has made him smile because it's evidence that they continue to not lay up treasures in he, uh, on earth where it's going to rust and destroy and thieves can steal it, but they're storing their treasure in heaven. They're living for eternal reward. And so he reminds him, them of this. That's what makes me so happy as an encouragement to continue to cheerfully give and trust yourselves to the God who will supply all your needs and generously give for the sake of the gospel. I, I say cheerful giving, not because it's in Philippians, but turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul's bragging about the Philippian church to the Corinthian church hoping to encourage the Corinthian church to grow a gospel heart of cheerful generosity like the Philippians had. And he even uses the phrase cheerful giving. But listen to this. What's happening in 2 Corinthians 8 is the Philippian church, when, when they learned that the Christian church in Jerusalem was suffering a famine and in need, they, their hearts went out to these believers upon whom their faith depended Paul had only come to them originally because of what had happened in the Jerusalem church. And they, listen to how they responded, 2 Corinthians 8.1. He says, I want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that's been given among the churches of Macedonia. So that's Philippi here. For in a severe test of affliction, things were not going peachy for them. Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. That is crazy math, right? Out of extreme poverty, but abounding with joy, those things came together in what one? The joy. And it says it overflowed with generosity. Look at verse three. They gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. And look at verse seven. Paul calls this an act of grace. He says, I want you to excel in this act of grace too, Corinthians. That's an act of grace. That does, that, that does not make sense in, in the eyes of the world right there, that their extreme poverty would overflow in an abundance of gener generosity like this, and they give above and beyond and I think that grows from the same anchor point we've got in our text. He basically says to the Corinthian church in different words the same thing that he says to the Philippians in chapter 4, verse 19 of Philippians. Listen, starting in verse uh, 7. No, not in verse 7. Verse, let's get it. Oh, sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah, chapter 9, verse 7. He says, God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he's distributed freely. He's given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in every way, not just to be rich, to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Isn't that essentially what he's saying to them in chapter four? My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So give freely. The anchor point will hold. God will never abandon you. He'll never let you down. 
You don't have to hold on like this because you're afraid he's going to change his mind. And so Paul rejoices over this cheerful giving because of this. It's fruit. And he also, in verse 18, I think he smiles because he knows it makes God smile. God loves a cheerful giver. The way he puts it in verse 18, he says, um, this gift that you sent to me, God has actually received as a fragrant offering and sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to him. It makes God smile. He looks down and he sees the Great Commission having gripped their heart and them being willing even in in their need to open-handedly, freely give for the sake of the gospel. And God smiles because it displays his worth, doesn't it? It shows people around this Philippian church what really matters to them and what they're, who they're living for. And that's where verse 20 goes, right? To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Makes God smile. And that makes Paul smile. So let's pray. God wants us to be content. These are connected here. God wants us to be content, not as an end in itself, but so that we also then, out of that contentment, would be cheerful givers, joyfully generous in a way that that stands out uh, in the world around us and draws people to Jesus. Let me pray. Well, Lord, we confess to you this morning here again, we have not arrived. We are all in this room, in in one place or another, (laughs) on the road to learning the secret to contentment. Lord, I pray this morning we would apply uh, this, this knowledge and, and truth to our actual circumstances. Lord, thank you, Jesus, um, that you are for us after the cross and, and resurrection and you always will be. Thank you, Jesus, that you're here with us right now as we leave this place back into our abundance or need or any, everything in between. Holy Spirit, thank you that you indwell us and you are by degrees transforming us, reforming us from one degree of glory to the next, back into the image uh, of God in us in these ways. So Lord, make us a a church that is marked by contentment, peace and joy um, that's detached from anything in this world. And Lord, make us generous. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.